Hello and welcome to History Zine, episode 13. We've been podcasting a whole year now and just about settling in. Coming up on the show this time, we have a review of All Things Medieval, The Duchess, a linguistic history trivia bit that talks about macaroni, and of course, our regular series on the War of the Spanish Succession. We'll be talking about the aftermath of the Battle of Blenheim this time. There's a couple of people that have commented on the blog that they'd like to hear what happened after Blenheim and the effects of the battle. So we'll be covering that this time. Now, I've got a snap little competition for you if you're interested. I'm, I'm in a book, and I've been sent a few copies of this book. It's maybe not entirely relevant here, as the subject is philosophy rather than history. But if you're prepared to listen to me wibble on about history, then maybe you might like to read what I have to say about philosophy. The book is called iPod and Philosophy. It's edited by D.E. Whitkower. It contains essays, and in the two chapters in which I'm involved, there's also Skype discussions. And it looks at the effects of the iPod on our world and how we use it. If you'd like to win a copy of this book, then I'd like you to try and write a very short promo for the History Zine podcast and send it to jim at historyzine.com. Send me your address, I'll pick out the best one and send you a copy of the book. Other things I want to mention before we get stuck into the history stuff. Firstly, thanks to Lisa of the Genealogy Gems podcast and Sir Justin of All Things Medieval for playing my promos. It's all very much appreciated. I have a couple of promos on my web pages, so any podcaster who wishes to use them is more than welcome to do so. Just go to the main page at historyzine.com and you'll see a link to the History Zine audio promos from there. They're available in WAV or MP3 format. Secondly, thank you to everyone who posts reviews on iTunes. They're a great help with the iTunes rankings and have contributed to History Zine's regular placement in the top 20 history podcasts in the UK and in the USA. Next, I want to thank people for the feedback they've sent in. I've had feedback in email and feedback in the comments on the blog at historyzine.com. There are some really insightful comments there. Benny and Bill in particular are two chaps that are always worth reading. It's well worth going over to the blog to see some of the comments you'll find about the podcast on there. The emails you've sent I usually consider private. So I won't actually mention any names here other than uh, a first name, Richard. I'd just like to say, Richard, I tracked down that BBC series you mentioned uh, about the Duke of Marlborough. It's called The First Churchills. I bought the DVDs. I enjoyed watching them very much indeed. And I'll put a link to it in the post for this podcast. Thank you very much, Richard, for making me aware of the existence of those DVDs. In other news, Tony Cox of Binge Thinking History has been struggling to find time to do his next podcast. But it's definitely been worked upon. It'll be a look at the history of the British Navy. And part of the show will be a discussion between Tony and myself as to the key moments in the history of the British Navy. Now, I've chosen the 1651 Navigation Act as the key moment, but I'll say no more about that here. You'll have to wait for the next episode of Binge Thinking History for that. And so, on with the show, and we'll start off with a review of the podcast, All Things Medieval. All Things Medieval 
is a podcast I find to be both a great frustration and a great delight. It's a fairly regular podcast. It appears every three weeks or so and covers, well, all things medieval. The joy of this podcast for me probably has more to do with the nature of the podcaster rather than its subject matter. So I shall start by telling you a little about him. He goes by the name of Sir Justin and seems to run a variety of businesses based around his portrayal of a 14th century knight at tourneys and educational reenactment events, mostly in Australia. He is also the agent for a number of sellers of reenactment weapons, tools and garments. Sir Justin takes his role very seriously indeed, continuously honing his weapon skills and increasing his knowledge of the role, and his enthusiasm for all of this is communicated beautifully through the podcast. I'll read you the description of Sir Justin from the website, so you get a flavour of the character. Sir Justin Webb is a fictional 14th century knight of England during the reign of the glorious King Edward III. He is of Anglo-French-German heritage, and owns lands and holdings in Yorkshire, Kent, Denmark, and currently resides in Bordeaux, Guyenne, but travels extensively. Sir Justin maintains his own retinue, but is retained by Edward of Woodstock, the Crown Prince of England and Guyenne. Guyenne is most commonly known today as Aquitaine. Sir Justin is quite fond of tournament, hunting, riding, dancing, singing, music and good company. He is a most chivalrous knight and devout Christian. He is married to Dame Genevieve, a French noble lady, and they have two children, Master John, also called Tyler because of his tendency to climb the roof of the manor house, and Miss Christine, whom is very artistic. This gives us the description of the character, and you can just see a glimpse of the chap underneath the character there too. The podcast is usually at least an hour long, despite his attempts to make it shorter, and seems largely unscripted. He loves speaking on his subject, and one gets the feeling it's a bit like a large boulder rolling downhill. Once it's been set in motion, it's very difficult to stop. As I mentioned before, I'm not usually a fan of rambling podcasts that just wander about a little bit and then wander off. But the saving grace here is that he does have some sort of structure. He prepares things he wants to talk about and then stuffs them into their respective slots in the show. There are moments when I just want to scream at him to get on with it when he's flailing around a bit. But mostly, his joyous enthusiasm carries me through. So, what sort of subject does he cover? Well, I said all things medieval up there, but that's a bit of a cop-out. I'll try and give you a few examples. The show will open with an introduction, where he tells you about some of the things he's been doing since the last podcast, and then we usually plunge into some recent news concerning things of interest to medieval enthusiasts. A recent headline from the show concerned the lawsuit brought by the descendants of the Templars against the Pope to try and regain their good name and another news story about the bio-tapestry, and another on why the Mary Rose may have been sunk. I enjoy this section. There's often stuff I haven't picked up on myself, and he offers opinion on the story that helps to place it in context and makes it so much more meaningful. I feel engaged, and will usually find myself following up on some of these stories after I finish listening to the podcast. 
In other sections, he'll talk about upcoming reenactment events, he'll do some debunking of Middle Ages myths, and he'll talk about the weapons and weapons techniques from the Middle Ages. As you can probably tell, I enjoy this podcast, but I'm also in a terrible quandary about it. Every time I listen to it, I wish I could get a hold of it and bash it into shape. I wish I could normalise the audio, compress it and then boost it up to a decent listening level. I also wish I could get a hold of suggesting and produce the hell out of him, getting him to stick to the subject and make his points more succinctly. I wish I could allocate him strict time schedules for each point and punctuate the breaks with bumpers to more clearly delineate the sections. But if I did this there will be a very real danger of losing something very precious indeed. There's a friendly, warm-hearted feel to the podcast that seems inherent in its rambling nature. One feels a shared sense of joy in his desire to talk about his subject, and there is the real danger that some of that warm-hearted feeling may just slip away a little bit if the format became too rigid. The audio, however, is another matter, mostly it's quite acceptable, as, although it's a little quiet, I can still hear everything he's saying. But one thing I would recommend to him, and indeed to every other podcaster, there's a wonderful programme called Levelator from the Conversations Network. If you have a WAV version of your audio file, you can just drop it into Levelator and it performs a little bit of magic on the file, which will give you a nice steady volume throughout the file. It's a stunning programme and your listeners' eardrums will thank you for it. I shall place a link to the download in my show notes. That's at historyzine.com. So, overall, this podcast is a joyful, rambling romp through the many facets of the medieval period, which is always a welcome addition to my download queue. That's All Things Medieval by Suggestion. I saw a film recently, a film based on a book I read some time ago. It's a fascinating book. It's by Amanda Foreman. It won all sorts of prizes when it came out. And it tells the story of Georgina, the Duchess of Devonshire. Georgina was a fashion icon of the 18th century. She was married to the Duke of Devonshire. And she was Georgina Spencer, a distant relative of the late Diana Spencer, Princess of Wales. Georgina was a fashion icon. She campaigned for the Whig Party. She was involved in so many of the major events of the day. Georgina was responsible for many of the bizarre fashions you may have seen in 18th century London fashion. This is women with very, very big hair. This is the kind of hair where you had to sit on the floor of your carriage so you could get the hair inside. She's responsible for popularising the strange way of talking that posh people still have today. The, the ya, rale, and all that sort of thing. Stretching out and flattening the vowels at the same time. That wasn't her invention, that was the Cavendish family talk, and she took that and popularised it amongst the ton which were the fashionable set. 
Now, reading this book, you get a very good insight into a really vivid, lively character. A woman full of fun and excitement, but also with some of her own personal character flaws and her own difficulties coming to terms with the rather stiff and formal marriage to the Duke of Devonshire. The Duke of Devonshire was a man who had great difficulty expressing his feelings and, frankly, didn't think he needed to. Whereas Georgina was such a vivid, lively character, and she needed that personal connection. Now, I've just given you a tiny glimpse there of the character of Georgina, and the book fleshes that out an awful lot. But I think you can probably tell where I'm going with this. The film, The Duchess, doesn't flesh out that character nearly half as much. And I think there are two reasons for this. I mean, it is a beautiful film. It stars Ray Fiennes, Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley does a wonderful portrayal of the Duchess of Devonshire. She's got that delightful, impish smile that I would have pictured her to have. Ray Fiennes does the rather surly, difficult Duke very well indeed. The costumes are gorgeous. The settings are stunning. I noticed Chatsworth House there, which is, of course, the seat of the Duke of Devonshire. And Kettleston Hall is also there. Kettleston Hall is one of the finest examples you'll see of the sort of 18th century neoclassicism. But the plot of the film, the portrayal of the varied and interesting character of Georgina, is thin, to say the least. And I think this happened for two reasons. One, and the first one is one I hadn't spotted at the time, just been reading a couple of reviews of the Duchess, and... Many of them mention the connection between Georgina and Diana Spencer, the being in a loveless marriage, the wanting to please her man, but he's not really interested, and she goes off looking for other diversions. And I wonder if maybe they became a little overexcited by this connection and neglected other parts of the plot. The other thing that I think was a problem with The Duchess, and it's not just a problem with The Duchess, it's a problem with most films, is that it is really, really difficult to put across a complicated and interesting historical character in such a short space of time. A film is maybe an hour and a half, two hours long, and yet anybody really interesting enough to attract our attention will usually be quite a varied and many-faceted person. And to be able to paint a rounded picture of such a person in an hour and a half, I think is just impossible. I've been racking my brains to try and think of a film that has managed it, and frankly I just can't come up with one. If any of you can think of one, please, please drop me a line on the blog, that's on historyzine.com, and I'd love to hear about it. But, by contrast, I just happen to have watched a couple of DVDs lately. And one is about Charles II, and it's called The Power and the Passion. It's a BBC miniseries, quite recent, only a few years ago. And it's about three, three and a half hours long. And that's just about enough to start getting a well-rounded picture of the person. Charles II is quite a complicated character. But The Power and the Passion has enough time for us to just relax and spend time with the character and get a feel for the character and sympathise and empathise with the character. And I've been watching another DVD called The First Churchills about John Churchill and Sarah Churchill, you know, the first Duke of Marlborough. This is even longer. This is 
a good eight hours or so. It's from, yet again from the BBC, way back in 1968. The sets look a bit flimsy and basic. It looks like they had almost no budget at all. But the important thing is that you get to spend a lot of time with the principal characters. And you also get the time to see many of the things that they did in their lives. And that gives you a good, clear, full picture of who they were. In the way that a film of only two hours at the most just cannot do. But having said this, I think The Duchess is still worth seeing. It is beautiful. The costumes and settings are gorgeous. The plot, well, I'll tell you the plot. The plot is young debutante Georgina marries the Duke of Devonshire. Duke of Devonshire's a bit cold. Georgina doesn't seem to be able to bear him a male heir. He takes a lover. She's jealous of the lover. Eventually, they just get on with it. It's a thin plot with few moments of real heartbreak. But for all that, worth seeing, and even more worthwhile, is the book by Amanda Foreman called Georgina. Yankee Doodle came to town riding on a pony Stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni So, which word do you think I'm going to pick out of that for my linguistic history trivia bit? Well, you probably guessed. It's macaroni. It's such a very strange word to be in there. I mean, I suspect many of our listeners will probably already know about this because I think I've heard children's programmes from the United States that have talked about this song and talked about the origins of macaroni. But for all you others, I'll talk about it a little here. The name macaroni has an Italian connection, as you might guess. It came from people who'd been on the Grand Tour, and it became fashionable in the 1770s to refer to something that was Italian in style as very macaroni. Now, there was a group of people in the 1770s, very fashionable fops, who would wear really over-the-top fashions, large buttons, huge poses of flowers, high-heeled shoes with great big buckles on them, and a small hat perched on the side of the head. As you can imagine, these people very quickly became a figure of fun to the media. And to give you a flavour of this, I'll read you a quote from a book called Georgina by Amanda Foreman. It says, The term macaroni was coined to describe the fashionable young fops of the 1770s. The term probably originated in the 1760s, when members of the short-lived macaroni club brought attention to themselves by their predilection for all things foreign, especially food. Macaronis were much criticised in the press. The Oxford magazine complained. There is indeed a kind of animal, neither male nor female, thing of neuter gender, lately started up among us. It is called a macaroni. It talks without meaning. It smiles without pleasure. It eats without appetite. It rides without exercise. And it wenches without passion. A delightful description there. So there you are, a macaroni, a fashionable thought from the 1770s. And just to go back to that little song I was attempting to sing at the beginning, that's obviously a dig at people from the American colonies trying to give themselves airs and graces, but looking ridiculous. The colonists actually reclaimed that song and made it their own. And now if you listen to the song, it's full of references to George Washington and his armies. So there you are. In short, a macaroni is a 1770s fop wearing bizarre and over-the-top fashions. 
hands now. The War of the Spanish Succession. In the last episode, I told of the great victory of the Allies. That England, the Netherlands, Austria, Savoy and several of the Germanic states, which include Baden, Prussia and Hanover. And they had an incredible victory over the forces of France and Bavaria. This battle was the Battle of Blenheim and was fought in Bavaria itself. This was a major battle in the history of Europe and a turning point in this particular war. In this episode I want to talk quite a bit about the effects of this battle and why it was so important. But first we'll push on the story just a little bit more to push it on to the end of the campaigning season in 1704. This battle had been won and it was a resounding victory. But for the Allied army and in particular for their leader the Duke of Marlborough there could be no rest. Burdened as they were by vast numbers of prisoners and great quantities of booty, they needed to press home their advantage. A great and powerful nation such as France is not defeated by a single battle. Marlborough had plans to invade France in the following year in 1705, and to do this he needed to establish a base of operations from where he could mount his attack. He pushed on, pursuing the retreating armies. He pushed on to Treves, which is on the Moselle, and simultaneously began to attack Trabach, which is also on the Moselle. The Margrave of Baden put the town of Landau to siege, and in the middle of December, Landau finally fell. So Marlborough had been moving down the Moselle, capturing these towns in turn, and establishing a good, solid base from which to mount an attack into France in the following year. He now had this good solid base, but his own work is not yet over. The fighting may have been completed, but there's now a hectic round of ambassadorial duties still to complete before he could return home to his beloved wife and his queen. He travelled to Berlin to ensure that they would leave their troops with the Allied army for the next campaigning season and to request even more troops to assist with operations in Italy. He then went to Hanover for negotiations with the Electress Sophia to arrange for Hanover's contribution to the Allied effort for 1705. And of course, while there, he has to pay court to the Electress, who stood to inherit the English throne should Queen Anne die. Now this English succession seems kind of strange. We're jumping sort of sideways to the Hanoverian royalty. This is because with the Stuarts being removed, we have a bit of a gap in the line of succession. And Anne herself has no surviving children at this point. So an agreement has been thrashed out for the succession to pass over to the Hanoverian royalty. These being the next people in line to the English throne who were not Catholic. England had become a staunchly Protestant country and there had been so many difficulties with Catholic monarchs, the last one being of course James II, that it had become illegal for a Catholic monarch to sit upon the throne of England. And funnily enough, it is still illegal today, here in 2008, it is still illegal to have a Catholic monarch on the throne of England. And it is also illegal for a monarch of England to marry a Catholic. 
We've actually got a situation going on at the moment where the heir apparent is dating a Catholic girl and Parliament is talking about the possibility of maybe changing the law so that a monarch can be married to a Catholic and still sit upon the throne of England. It'll be interesting to see how that comes out because surely, surely by now, after hundreds and hundreds of years, the wounds of the religious wars in Europe, surely those wounds have healed by now. But we shall see. But back to late 1704, back to Hanover. The Electress of Hanover was absolutely charmed by the Duke of Marlborough and said of him, Never have I become acquainted with a man who knows how to move so gracefully, so freely and so courteously. He is as skilled a courtier as he is brave as a general. And this, she sums it up quite beautifully here because I think this is one of the things that so fascinates me about the Duke of Marlborough. He is a brave and ruthless general, at home amid the carnage of the battlefields of Europe, who can stand toe-to-toe with anyone in hard-faced battlefield negotiations, and yet he can transition into the role of elegant court gentleman, conversant in the delicate subtleties of courtly behaviour. It is only such a man who could have pulled together such a diverse alliance and mediated so delicately between the many competing national interests. I am absolutely convinced that had any other person been in his position, the alliance would have collapsed only months after it was formed. In fact, Louis XIV, the French king, he was also convinced back there in 1702. He felt that once William had died, that there would be nobody could come forward with the strength to hold the alliance together. And he certainly didn't think Marlborough was the man to be able to do this. Anyway, enough from now over my infusing for the Duke. We'll continue with the story. Now, the Duke left Hanover and journeyed to The Hague in the Netherlands to discuss with his great friend Heinzius and the other Dutch leaders his plans for campaigning in 1705 and then finally on the 22nd of December he was able to set out for home arriving back in England on the 25th of December. So we've got the Duke all set up for next year's campaigning but I want to look at his reception when he got home and also try to convey just how important his victory at Blenheim was to England and to the future of Europe. I've had a number of comments on the blog asking what were the effects of the battle and hopefully the following will give you some notion of the significance of this battle. I'll start by reading once more the note he wrote on the battlefield giving notice of the victory. I have not time to say more but to beg you will give my duty to the Queen and let her know her army has had a glorious victory. Monsieur Tallard and two other generals are in my coach and I am following the rest. The bearer, my aide-de-camp, Colonel Park, will give her an account of what has passed. I shall do it in a day or two by another more at large. That message was written by the Duke of Marlborough on the battlefield of Blenheim and on the 21st of August, New Style, 1704. Colonel Park delivered the note to Marlborough's wife, Sarah, who then ushered him on to the Queen with the news. It had been an anxious time for the Queen, and the relief when she heard the news was tremendous. The cannons in the Tower of London were fired, bells were rung, and the note Marlborough had sent was soon copied and being passed from hand to hand all round the coffee shops of London. Bonfires were lit, and the whole of London became one giant party, 
as almost everyone celebrated the victory. It seems a little glib to say so, but I get the impression the atmosphere was very similar to what we might get now were England to win the Ashes or the Football World Cup. The seemingly invincible French armies had been defeated and an English duke was at the head of the victorious Allied forces. It was a time to celebrate the glory and valour of the English fighting man. The first significant land battle victory since Agincourt, some 300 years before. I made the comparison to the Ashes just a few moments ago, which will have mystified quite a number of you out there. The Ashes is a cricketing tradition. England and Australia compete against each other for this small trophy, and it's held in very high regard by both nations. Australia are easily the best cricketing team in the world at the moment, and recently they've been winning the Ashes year after year after year. England teams seem to consider it a hopeless task as regards beating the Australians, and so for the longest time it was. However, a couple of years ago an England team with a brilliant strategist as captain and a few talented players managed to win this competition and the elation throughout the country was absolutely incredible. For a time, everybody was talking about this victory and everyone claimed to be cricketing fans. There was a pride in this achievement probably linked to the previous seeming impossibility of the task of beating the Australians at a game they had come to dominate. Now, a war is a hugely different entity in so many ways, but there are certainly parallels there as regards the impossible nature of the victory and the celebrations afterwards. Despite the successful sieges and the localised victories Marlborough had managed to achieve in the Low Countries, the French army was still considered unbeatable in open battle. Until that moment, in 1704, when the French and the Bavarians were so soundly beaten at Blenheim. The Queen, too, was more than a little relieved by this victory, as she'd been under considerable pressure to concentrate her resources upon the sea, rather than risk wasting them in a land war. This battle vindicated her decision to place her faith in Marlborough's vision of the war and the way it must be waged. In Versailles, the news from Germany also had a very great impact. There was an atmosphere of shock and disbelief, but as more and more news began to trickle in, the full horror of the defeat was revealed. It was at this point that Louis XIV, the French king, decided he wanted no more of war. This monarch had been putting his armies in the field year after year, expanding the boundaries of France and dominating the continent. A few weeks earlier, it looked as if he might sweep away the Holy Roman Empire and have a controlling interest in the whole of Europe. After this battle, he must look more to the defence of French possessions and could no longer consider seriously the possibility of a final defeat of the Austrian Habsburgs. To drive home this point, I want to read you a little bit from Winston Churchill's book, Marlborough, His Life and Times, partly because he makes the point so well and partly because I find his prose so delightful and wish to share it with you. The terror of the French armies was broken. Forty years of successful war, the invasion of so many countries, few and minor reverses, and these repaired by victory upon a hundred fields had brought a renown before which even while they still resisted the most stubborn opponents bowed their heads. 
French generals and French troops believed themselves to be, and were largely accepted throughout the continent as, a superior military order. All this was changed by the Danube battle. Here was defeat, naked, brutal, murderous. Defeat in spite of numbers, defeat by manoeuvre and defeat by force. The prolonged severity of the fighting and the extraordinary losses of the victors proved the reality of the test. But to all this was added the sting of disgrace and ridicule, a surrender in mass of the finest infantry of France, the most famous regiments disarmed wholesale on the battlefield, the shameful confusion and collapse of command in Blenheim village, the overthrow of the French cavalry front to front by sword against pistol, their flight while their comrades perished. All these hideous disillusionings had now to be faced. And with them also rose the star of the island troops, their defence, their discipline, their fighting energy, their readiness to endure extraordinary losses, the competence and team play of their officers, the handiness of their cavalry and field artillery, their costly equipment and lavish feeding, their self-assured and affected disdain of foreigners became the talk of Europe. There was a quality in their attacks upon the Schallenberg and the village of Blenheim, earnest, downright and violent which seemed to raise the fierceness of the war to a new degree. Few they were, but thenceforward they were marked men. Soon we shall see Louis XIV writing special instructions to his marshals that in any order of battle the best troops should be placed opposite the English. Now, you have to allow for Winston Churchill's patriotism and use of rhetoric there. He makes no mention of the many fine German and Dutch troops on the winning side. But it is important to stress that England was considered very much a big player in European power struggles until this time. And it is this battle that establishes England as a major European power in all respects, rather than just a naval or an economic power. I have another comment for you here on the aftermath of Blenheim from the 19th century British historian Sir Edward Creasy in his book The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World. When Louis XIV took the reins of government into his own hands after the death of Cardinal Mazarin, there was a union of ability with opportunity such as France had not seen since the days of Charlemagne. Moreover, Louis' career was no brief one. For upwards of 40 years, for a period nearly equal to the duration of Charlemagne's reign, Louis steadily followed an aggressive and a generally successful policy. He passed along youth and manhood of triumph before the military genius of Marlborough made him acquainted with humiliation and defeat. The great Bourbon lived too long. He should not have outstayed our two English kings, one his dependent, James II, the other his antagonist, William III. Had he died in the year within which they died, his reign would be cited as unequalled in the French annals for its prosperity. But he lived on to see his armies beaten, his cities captured, and his kingdom wasted by disastrous war. It is as if Charlemagne had survived to be defeated by the Northmen, and to witness the misery and shame that actually fell to the lot of his descendants. Still, Louis XIV had 40 years of success, and from the permanence of their fruits, 
we may judge what the results would have been if the last fifteen years of his reign had been equally fortunate. Had it not been for Blenheim, all Europe might at this day suffer under the effect of French conquests resembling those of Alexander in extent and those of the Romans in durability. Two accounts there, which I think should give you some idea of how important this victory was. If France had won, then the way to Vienna lay wide open, and Max Emmanuel, the Elector of Bavaria, would have become the new Holy Roman Emperor, and would have had control over the mighty Austrian armies. The many principalities would have certainly sworn allegiance to him, seeing their own position as untenable. Max Emmanuel would have been controlled by Louis, and the Holy Roman Empire would find itself a vassal of the French king. England would have most certainly pulled out of the war. There was considerable opposition to the war in England, where it was considered by many to be somebody else's problem, and not something they should be spending so much money, time, resources and men upon. Without the British Navy, Portugal would have been overrun by Spain, and standing alone, the Netherlands would have soon capitulated under the might of France. This would have made the position of Louis as master of Europe quite insurmountable. He could have brought the war to an end and refilled the depleted coffers of France. We wouldn't have had the war of the Austrian succession, nor seen the rise of Prussia. France could have made a much stronger challenge to Britain in the trading disputes and thus grown richer. One has to wonder, with the French monarchy then in a position of such power, whether the French Revolution, only some 84 years later than this, would have taken place. I am quite certain it would not have taken place at that time, and feel that social changes would be more likely to follow the pattern we've seen in Britain, where grudging concessions are made to the populace bit by bit, until they are in a position to demand major changes, so we'd have had a gradual progression rather than the revolution that they had in France. Looking at it like this, it may actually not have been a bad thing for Europe if France had won that battle. Maybe, if Prussia had not been allowed to grow strong, we would have not seen the carnage of the 20th century, where Germany struggled to grab its own piece of the pie. France as overlord of the weaker nations, would have had the final say on the disputes of the European nations. Of course, this what-if scenario could go on forever. I haven't even mentioned the United States yet, but certainly a dominant and imperial France would have viewed the New World as a satellite of its own nation and could quite easily have shunted Britain aside to take control of the Americas. Without a strong opposition to the power of France, it is unlikely the United States could have attained independence from the French monarch. I'm not saying the United States would have never come into being, but it certainly wouldn't have come into being in the 18th century, because an unopposed France would have been just too strong for the colonists to throw out. But of course, then we follow on to arguments about the power of democracy, about the struggle of the people to be free. We've got the Enlightenment happening in the late 18th century. So possibly these feelings of freedom, the philosophy of freedom would have spread through enough people that eventually we would have got the opening out of the franchise to more and more people. And eventually, maybe there would have been a United States that gained independence from France. 
but I suspect we will be looking at at least another 100 years. We might not see a formation of the United States till about 1875. But enough of this alternate history stuff. The history of Europe changed at that moment, whether for better or worse is a matter of conjecture. But the forces of France were shown to be no longer invincible. As far as Britain was concerned, the place where this would make most difference was on the battlefield. The mindset of the common soldier had altered to such a degree that now, when he saw the vast columns of French soldiers coming towards him, he knew he could beat them. And in warfare such as this, where vast number of soldiers stand so close to the enemy, blazing away as the enemy stands there and shoots back at you, you need to have a vast store of confidence in your own abilities and that of your commanders. If for one second you consider the situation hopeless, it is all too likely fear will get the better of you and you will run at the first opportunity. This battle made that difference to the confidence of the British armies and the Allied armies. France was no longer invincible. And that's all for now. I'll come back to you in the next episode and we'll look forward to 1705 in the War of the Spanish Succession. Thank you for listening and bye for now. The music in this episode is from the album Rameau and Leclerc by the artist Philharmonia Baroque. You'll be able to download this album at the website magnitune.com.